I've been told I have to provide the music today also. So here we go. Vedantavakyeshu sadaramanto Bhikshana matrena chatushtimantaha Vishukamanta karane charanta Kaupinavanta khalubhagyavanta Mulantaro kevalamashrayanta Panidvayam bhuktuma mantrayanta Kanthamiva shrimapikutsayanta Kaupinavanta Kalubhagyavanta Swananda bhave Paritushtimanta Sushanta sarvendriya vrittimanta Ahar nisham brahma sukheramanta Kaupinavanta Kalubhagyavanta Dehadibhavam Parivartayanta Svatmanamatmanyavilukayanta Namtam namadhyam nabahismaranta Kaupinavanta khalubhagyavanta Brahmaksharam pavanamucharanto Brahmahamasmiti vibhavayantaha Bhikshashinodikshuparibhramantaha Kaupinavantaha Kalubhagyavantaha Kaupinavantaha Kalubhagyavantaha This is the well-known Kaupina Panchakam, five stanzas on the wearer of the loincloth, the traditional wandering monk by Shankaracharya. Roaming ever in the grove of Vedanta, ever pleased with his beggar's morsel, wandering onward, his heart free from sorrow, blessed indeed is the wearer of the loincloth. Sitting at the foot of a tree for shelter, eating from his hands his meager portion, spurning wealth like a patched-up garment, blessed indeed 
is the wearer of the loincloth. Satisfied fully by the bliss within him, curbing wholly the cravings of his senses, delighting day and night in the bliss of Brahman, blessed indeed is the wearer of the loincloth. Witnessing the changes of mind and body, naught but the self within him beholding, heedless of outer, of inner, of middle, blessed indeed is the wearer of the loincloth. Chanting Brahman, the word of redemption, meditating only on I am Brahman, living on alms and wandering freely, blessed indeed is the wearer of the loincloth. So this is a beautiful hymn that we monks like to chant because it reminds us of that tradition of wandering, uh, depending only on God, dedicating our life to that one goal alone, God-realization, and not wanting anything else. It captures beautifully that, uh, that, that kind of austere and yet glorious life of freedom, of the Vedanta monk. So uh, that seemed to me to be an appropriate introduction to today's talk because today our topic is the call of the spirit. The ever-present reality, which is, it is, is existence. It is consciousness itself. It is love and bliss itself is ever shining in our hearts and in the hearts of all, behind everything, in the heart of everything, is the reality. This is the teaching of Vedanta. Our sages, our teachers tell us this. Vivek, Swami Vivekananda says, I have seen nothing but God all my life, nor have you. He is everywhere, saying, I am. The moment you feel, I am, you are conscious of existence. Where shall we go to find God if we cannot find him in our own hearts and in every living being? So the tragedy is that so few of us know this. So few of us are aware of it. Even if we intellectually assent to this, how many of us know it? The Spirit is within everything. It is the very basis of our being. It is calling to us, as it were, calling to us, wake up, see who you are, know who you are as infinite consciousness and bliss. Can we hear that call? Like Wordsworth, sensing, uh, uh, sensing the intimations of immortality as a child, can we hear the Spirit calling to us to discover ourselves, to discover who we are, what a tremendous blessing it is to hear that call. And I think all of us here present today have heard that call, or we wouldn't be here. We have heard that call. So how will we respond to that call? How we respond, our destiny depends on our response. Are we going to ignore that call? I don't think we can. I'd like to tell the story of two disciples of Swami Vivekananda who heard the call of the Spirit 
They were seeking and they heard the call of the Spirit and they came to Swami Vivekananda and how they responded to that call. It's tremendously inspiring. So I read uh, uh, significant portions of their stories. The two disciples I'm thinking of are Christina Greensteidel and Mrs. Mary Funky. These were two women, friends, living in Detroit. Mrs. Funky was married with a family. Christina was uh, young, uh, uh, younger and she was not married. She was looking after her mother and supporting the family as the wage earner and all of that. And they were seeking and life seemed intolerable because where everything seemed dead. The life, the, the spiritual religion was not giving them what they wanted. In those days, people would go to lectures. There was no movies, no radio, no television, nothing like that. So people would go to lectures to, to get some inspiration, to learn something. And yet they were all boring. They weren't, they, there, was nothing, <laughs> there was nothing in them. So she describes it like this. There are times when life flows on in a steady deadly stream of monotony. Eating, sleeping, talking, the same weary round. Commonplace thoughts, stereotyped ideas, the eternal treadmill. Tragedy comes. For a moment it shocks us into stillness. But we cannot keep still. The merry-go-round stops neither for our sorrow nor our happiness. Surely this is not all there is to life. This is not what we are here for. She's describing that, that dissatisfaction that we all feel with the ordinary life of just earning money and dinners and dances and all of that stuff. Restlessness comes, she writes. What are we waiting for? Then, one day, it happens. The stupendous thing for which we have been waiting, that which dispels the deadly monotony, which turns the whole of life into a new channel, our restlessness is stilled forever. And then this happens. Little did I think, when I reluctantly set out one cold February night in 1894 to attend a lecture at the Unitarian Church in Detroit, that I was doing something which would change the whole course of my life and be of such stupendous import that it could not be measured by previous standards I had known. Attending lectures had been part of the deadly monotony. How seldom did one hear anything new or uplifting. The lectures who had come to Detroit that winter had been unusually dull. So unvarying had been the disillusion that one had given up hope and with it the desire to hear more. So it was that I went very unwillingly to this particular lecture to hear one Vivekananda, a monk from India. And only in response to the pleading of my friend, Mrs. Mary C. Funky. So here we see this turning point. She doesn't yet know what's happening. She's being dragged by her friend to see an, yet another lecture. Oh God, what did the, everything is empty. So about Mary, she writes, with her beautifully optimistic nature, she had kept her illusions and still believed that someday she would find that something. We went to hear this man from India. Surely, Never in our countless incarnations had we taken a step so momentous. 
for before we had listened five minutes, we knew that we had found the touchstone for which we had searched so long. In one breath, we exclaimed, if we had missed this. So that is how, somehow, the call of the Spirit led them into the presence of a great teacher, a guru, a messenger of light, who calls on all of us to wake up to our own divinity. I'll read a little more. Which of us who heard him can then forget what soul memories were stirred within us when we heard the ancient message of India? Hear ye, children of immortal bliss, even ye who dwell in higher spheres. I have found the ancient one, knowing whom alone ye shall be saved from death over again. Or the story of the lion and the sheep. Blessed truth, in spite of your bleating, your timidity, your fear, you are not the sheep. You are and always have been the lion, powerful, fearless, the king of beasts. It is only an illusion that is to be overcome. You are that now. So she writes so touchingly, we knew we had found our teacher. The word guru we did not know then, nor did we meet him personally. But what matter? It would take years to assimilate what we had already learnt. And then the master would somehow, somewhere, teach us again. It is said, when the disciple is ready, the guru comes. When we are ready, the teacher comes. And the right teacher will come for us in our particular station of life, with our particular development, our particular understanding, we will find our teacher if we long to find the teacher. The teacher will come. That blessed, blessed day when they decided to go to one more lecture after all. And they didn't even know him personally, yet she felt that was enough. And yet, that's going to change. Now let's hear from Mary Funky. She writes, he always, he, Swami Vivekananda, always loved Detroit and was grateful for all the kindness and courtesy shown him. We had no chance to meet him in a personal way at the time, but we listened and pondered in our hearts over all that we heard him say, resolving to find him sometime, somewhere, even if we had to go across the world to do it. We lost trace of him completely for nearly two years, and thought that probably he had returned to India. But one afternoon, we were told by a friend that he was still in this country and that he was spending the summer at Thousand Island Park, which is about just over 400 miles from Detroit. I thought it was further, but I looked on the map, but De Detroit is up there by the Great Lakes and just uh, 400 miles, which in uh, 1895 is... is Probably there was train service and boat service, but it was a trek. It was definitely a trek, a 400-mile trek. What happened? They heard, wow, he's in Thousand Island Park. The next morning, they started. They had to go see him. The next morning, we started, resolved to seek him out and ask him to teach us. At last, after a weary search, we found him. We were feeling very much frightened at our temerity in thus intruding upon his privacy. But 
he had lighted a fire in our souls that could not be quenched. We must know more of this wonderful man and his teaching. How beautiful, this fire in their souls. Let us feel, we also have a fire burning in our souls that cannot be quenched. We have to become aware of it. We have to tend to that fire. We have to fan it gently with the, fla- with the, with the breeze of, of longing for God, with the breeze of, of uh, holy company and repeating the holy name and uh, meditation and prayer. Let's fan that fire so that it becomes a roaring blaze that truly cannot be quenched because that fire brought them to the feet of Swami Vivekananda. Their hour had struck. They could no longer ignore the imperative to seek out the teacher. They could set aside all thoughts of propriety. Two women going by themselves in 1895 by train to Thousand Island Park where they didn't know a soul. So they reached Thousand Island Park. It was a dark, rainy night, but we could not wait. Every moment was precious and our imagination was stirred up to the nth degree. We did not know a soul in the place, but finally we hit upon the plan of making inquiries at the various shops and thus find out where Miss Dutcher lived. Apparently they had the name of Swamiji's host, Miss Dutcher. At one place we were told that there was a cottage occupied by a Miss Dutcher and that a, quote, foreign-looking man who dressed queerly was staying there. (laughs) Then we knew. We knew our quest was ended, and we found a man with a lantern who went ahead of us, remember, in the rain and in the dark. Would he accept us? And if he did not, what then could we do? It suddenly seemed to us that it might be a foolish thing to go several hundred miles to find a man who did not even know of our existence. But we plodded on up the hill in the rain and darkness, up, up the wet and slippery path, It seemed as if we were taking one step up and two steps back. It was so slippery. The first thing we heard when we reached the house was the rich, beautiful voice of the Swami, who was talking to those who had gathered on his porch. Our heartbeats could have been heard, I truly believe. His hostess asked him to come downstairs to see us as two ladies from Detroit, and he greeted us so sweetly. It was like a benediction. I like Detroit, he said. I have many friends there, isn't it? Speaking of this in after years, our guru would refer to us as my disciples who traveled hundreds of miles to find me and they came in the night and in the rain. So this is what longing can do. When we get that kind of longing, we, we, we go, we take whatever it takes. Let us find the teacher. Let us seek him out in the dark and in the rain. And then the last, the last part, we had thought, they had planned out what to say. <laughs> we had thought of what to say to him. But when we realized that we had really found him, we instantly forgot all our fine speeches. And one of us blurted out, we came from Detroit and Mrs. P sent us to you. The other said, we have come to you just as we would go to Jesus if we were still on the earth and ask him to teach us. He looked at us so kindly and said gently, if only I possessed the power of the Christ to set you free now.
So this is the, tremendously inspiring to me, and I hope you can also find the inspiration in it of the story of the, how these two disciples came to Swami Vivekananda, uh, just following their, that, that call of the Spirit uh, as manifested through Vivekananda. And they were blessed, tremendously blessed to be accepted into the community. And they stayed there in Thousand Island Park with Swamiji. That night they, were, they stayed with the, with the, in the class and they went back to a lodging house. And, then, and they were asked, next morning you come back and you join us. And so they stayed for the remainder of Swami Vivekananda's time in Thousand Island Park, where he was at his best. He had gathered the close disciples around him. He was full of fire, full of the spirit of Monasticism also, for he, uh, let me read the last bit from uh, Mary Funky. There were 12 of us, and it seemed as if Pentecostal fire descended and touched the master. One afternoon, when he had been telling us of the glory of renunciation, of the joy and freedom of those of the ochre robe, he suddenly left us, and in a short time he had written his song of the sannyasin, a very passion of sacrifice and renunciation. Perhaps some of you are familiar with that poem. I'll share a couple of stanzas from it shortly. This uh, tremendous poem describing the glory of the monk's life. So uh, this period in Thousand Island Park, Swami Vivekananda actually initiated several disciples into monastic life, granting brahmacharya, the initial, the initial ordination, to a number of them, including Christina, who afterwards became known as Sister Christine, and two of them also into sannyasa, the final ordination. Uh, and uh, so it's no wonder then that uh, even Mrs. F- everyone was taken up with this ideal. So even Mrs. Funky writes, I had a vague idea that to live in a cave and wear a yellow robe would be the proper thing to do if one wished to develop spiritually. How foolish of me. And how wise Swamiji was. He said, you are a householder. Go back to Detroit. Find God in your husband and family. That is your path at present. But to Christina, he saw her future in India. He saw that she was to be a nun. And he initiated her into brahmacharya. This term brahmacharya we use as a it literally means moving in Brahman, Brahmacharya, moving in Brahman. Sister Nivedita defines it as the ideal of the life of the student with its mingling of solitude, austerity, and intense concentration of thought. There's an intensity to Brahmacharya. And part of it is that the student is to remain celibate, to restrain the impulse towards uh, of lust. And typic- in traditional India, after that period of studentship of brahmacharya, one would enter the householder stage and would get married and raise a family and support society and all of that. But there are some who are called to be lifelong brahmacharis, um, brahmacharinis, to become monks and nuns. And uh, though it, sou- it may sound to many people a little bit frightening or a little bit dry and aust- so, ter- so terribly austere, uh, I hope that uh, today's talk we can dispel that myth a little bit. And also uh, to recognize that there is something of the monk 
or none in every sincere student of Vedanta, in every sincere seeker of God. Uh, because we can take inspiration from that ideal, which, which we monks and nuns are also striving to live up to. <laughs> the ideal is very high. We may not fully embody that ideal, but we also uh, are inspired by that same ideal of a life of total dedication, free of all encumbrances and entanglements to our spiritual ideal. As uh, Mrs. Funky was writing from Thousand Island Park to a letter, she wrote, we are taught to see God in everything, from the blade of grass to man, even in the diabolical man. In his talks he may go ever so far afield, but always he comes back to the one fundamental, vital thing. Find God. Nothing else matters. Find God. Nothing else matters. Whether we embrace the life of a householder or whether we are called to a monastic life or to something in between. Find God. Nothing else matters. Once we have heard the call of the Spirit. How do we respond? How do we respond to the call of the Spirit? For Mrs. Funky and Christina Greenstadl, they dropped everything to find their guru. And yes, Sister Christine also was able to give up a career, give up family life and everything and become a nun because nothing else matters. So this ideal of giving up, of letting go, letting go, letting go, all right. Whether we are in, our, uh, in householder life, we have careers and families, or we're in, in the monk's life, we have to let go or we get caught and we suffer, we suffer, we suffer. As Swami Vivekananda put it in his Song of the Sannyasin, Thine only is the hand that holds the rope that drags thee on. Thine only is the hand that holds the rope. There's a rope, we feel like we're being dragged and we're bound down. But guess what? It's our hand that's holding that rope. And then he says, cease lament. Let go thy hold. Just let go. Sannyasa, this tradition of sannyasa of India, is uh, a tradition of Advaita Vedanta, non-dual Vedanta. So the, it, it, that tradition affirms that ultimately there is only one infinite existence, one inf- and it is of the very nature of consciousness and bliss, and you, and you, and I, and everyone, and everything is an embodiment, a manifestation of that. And ultimately, it, there is no separation. It is not that, there are, that we are separate. We all become one as all the rivers flow into the one ocean, as all the raindrops fall into the one ocean. It's one infinite ocean. And that thou art, says Vedanta. So uh, let me read the first stanza of this Song of the Sannyasin, which for Monks and nuns, of course, is tremendously inspiring. And it's, I think it's very inspiring for any true seeker of the divine. He starts it with this line, Wake up the note, the song that had its birth far off, where worldly taint could never reach, in mountain caves and glades of forest deep, whose calm no sigh for lust or wealth or fame could ever dare to break, 
where rolled the stream of knowledge, truth, and bliss that follows both. Sing high that note, sannyasin bold. Say om, tat sat, om. So each stanza of this poem ends with this uh, sannyasin bold, say om, tat sat, om. There is a boldness that we need in spiritual life, to say, yes, this is what matters to me. This is more important than anything else, more important than career, more important than family, more important than pleasures and good food. I want to find God. This is it. So there's a boldness. We need to be bold. Whether we are monks or householders or anything else, (laughs) boldness is required. Fearlessness is required. And... uh, Sannyasin bold, say om tat sat om. This is a traditional formula indicating that infinite reality. Om is the syllable of Brahman, expressing that infinite, all-encompassing reality. And tat sat literally means that existence. Om, that existence. That is, the om is the only existence. It is that reality. It is the reality. And thou art that. And something, it's so Touching this idea that wake up the note. We are asleep still. We have to wake up that note. What is that note? The note that was sung by the ancient sages in distant places who went up to the caves of the Himalayas and the the glades of the forests to uh, realize the self and proclaim this is the reality. We are infinite bliss. Realize it. Wake up and realize it. And it's that calm, that tremendous uh, ocean of calm that's re- t- touched when we go deep into meditation, that calm cannot be broken by any sigh for lust or wealth or fame. Uh, this is why um, not everyone is called to be a monk. And uh, a monk who still longs for lust and wealth and fame will be miserable. So it's not, we, we are where we are supposed to be. Uh, if we still have those cravings, then all right, wait. You're, the, the time for complete renunciation may come yet, but it's not yet time. And yet, for those for whom that craving has dried up, those who are no longer interested, the burning desire for God has outshone those insignificant little cravings for them to lead the life of a householder is a torture. For them, they can answer the call in a different way. And we have the assurance that the stream of knowledge and truth is always followed by bliss infinite joy. It is a joy, this singing this song, the song of the sannyasin. One more stanza. Strike off thy fetters, the second stanza. Strike off thy fetters, bonds that bind thee down of shining gold or darker, baser or love, hate, good, Bad and all the dual throng. No, slave is slave, caressed or whipped, not free. For fetters, though of gold, are not less strong to bind. Then off with them, sannyasin bold. Say om, dat sat om. This idea that we are in slavery, 
This is the impulse of the monk. Cut it, cut it, cut it off. Like the, uh, uh, the Bhagavad Gita, Sri Krishna describes this world as a tremendous tree, an infinite tree with a, the, a, a, a banyan tree with the roots above and the leaves below, and it's a tremendous tree, and, and we are caught in it. And what are we, what are we asked to do? How, what do we do about this tree? We have to take an axe and sharpen it, sharpen it tremendously with uh, viveka, with uh, discernment and with detachment, and take that axe of detachment and just cut the whole tree down. We won't be able to extricate ourselves from it. We just cut it. Strike off thy fetters. Yes, this goal, this ideal of detachment leads to wonderful freedom and joy. It's not something dry and painful. When we recognize it, how free we can be, how free we can feel. You know, I, I remember when uh, I was living in San Francisco and Swami Sarvadevanandaji, head of our center, he came up to Berkeley. And so I went over to see him. And I was already feeling somewhat drawn to this, this life. And he started putting the pressure on me. He was saying, oh, you come down and stay with us. It's wonderful. And, and I said, but I have a car. <laughs> and uh, it's actually interesting how attached we get to our cars all our possessions and particularly perhaps our cars they become as it were an extension of ourselves and he immediately said we have cars don't worry we have cars too <laughs> and actually that car was, is, was part of my joining the monastery that was the final moment when I finally joined the monastery I drove to the monastery and invited my sister to come visit me and signed the papers of the car over to her and gave them to her and watched my car, formerly my car, drive down the driveway of the Trabuco Monastery, down and going down. And I thought, wow, it's gone. Now, this, that was like, it really made it, drove it home to me that I've done it. I've actually joined the monastery. There goes my car, you know. There goes, this is my, my one <laughs> escape route, you know. Escape route is gone now. <laughs> I don't have a car anymore. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> that was wonderful. It was a tremendous feeling of freedom. Okay, no more. I don't have, a car. I don't have to worry about a car anymore. Fantastic. <laughs> we still have cars, and we have to look after them. But it's not my car. There's a great lesson for, for all of us, even if we're not monks. Do we look at it as my car? Or what if we called it God's car? And I'm just taking care of it. What if instead of saying my house, we called it God's house? You know, there are devotees who name their houses as, say, uh, Ramakrishna Kutir, Ramakrishna Cottage. This is Ramakrishna's cottage, or uh, Holy Mother Home, or uh, give it some name, and they'll put a sign out front even. So to make it real, this is really the name of the house. It's not my house. It's Holy Mother's house. It's God's house. I'm just living here, and I'm taking care of it. It's God's house. We want to possess, and yet we get possessed. We, we want to hold so many things, and rather we are held by those things. We want to enjoy so much, and yet we become enjoyed. We become worn out. We become dried up by all, the, all our possessions, all our enjoyments, everything. Cut it off. Strike off your fetters. One of the glories, the real glories of Indian culture, is its recognition of this call, this call to give up and seek God alone. 
it recognizes that there are those who hear the call of the Spirit so loudly that they can no longer follow the usual path. They march to a different drummer. They take the road less traveled, as it were. And India recognizes that and says, all power to you. May you attain the goal. We will give you sustenance. We'll feed you. We'll give you the simple clothes. We're not going to put you in a luxury palace, but we'll, we'll give you what, you what you need. The basics of life, little food, little clothing. It's a warm country, so how much do you need? Um, we will give you that so that you can lead that dedicated life and pray for us and bless us. So that is the, uh, the, one of the glories of India and Indian culture, and really of the uh, culture of the Vedanta societies here, because we who are l- living this monastic life, we're tremendously grateful to all of you who make it possible, because it's you, you, those of you who are not monastics support the Vedanta society with your uh, volunteer service and your donations, and that makes it possible for us to lead this life. So uh, we're, we're deeply and humbly grateful. So uh, some, a little something about uh, our institution. The, the, the original call to monasticism, the original call to strike out and into the, the great unknown with only God for our support must have been an organic development. But people heard the call and they would just go forth and seek and people would, be, would, would feed those people who, are mad, who have become completely mad for God. Sri Ramakrishna used to say, everybody in this world is mad. Some people are mad for money. Some people are mad for sex. Some people are mad for name and fame. Be mad for God. I'm mad for God. What's wrong with that? Everybody's mad. Be mad for God. So those who become mad for God, they, they, where that's the only thing that remains. Uh, now, gradually, some institutions came up to support that call. And uh, there are some formal ordinations that developed, and the taking of vows and monastic orders came up. And our monastic order is called the Ramakrishna order. It's a relatively new order of monastics, founded by Sri Ramakrishna himself. Uh, he uh, gave this ochre-colored cloth to uh, t- 12 of his disciples, and gradually, actually, his his, the cadre of original monks grew to 16. Uh, but, um, and then Swami Vivekananda set it on a firm foundation and organized it. It's also in the lineage of Shankaracharya, the great teacher of non-dualism. Uh, the ten orders of monks in India, uh, I should say monks and nuns, um, with the names like Saraswati and Giri and Puri. We in the Ramakrishna order are in the Puri lineage. So my full name is actually Swami Mahayogananda Puri. Uh, we usually drop the Puri. Or somebody accused us, actually, you people in the Ramakrishna order, you eat the Puri. <laughs> because the Puri also means a, a, a fried bread. <laughs> so you, you eat the Puri because we you don't usually use it. But it, among the traditional monks, you're supposed to use that, that, that term also. Uh, so Swami Vivekananda placed this ideal for our order. And probably you've heard this many times, Atmano Mokshartham Jagad Hitaycha. For the sake of uh, one's own liberation, one's own spiritual illumination, and for the 
compassion for the blessing of the world, for the good of everyone, for the, the good of every being. So, um, and these two are not uh, opposed to each other. They go, ha- they go hand in hand. On the one hand, seeking for my own illumination and recognizing that we're all in this together, in a sense. And so every being is a manifestation of the divine. I will, for not, it's not only a blessing for me, it's a blessing for everybody. And I seek to, uh, we seek to raise everybody, to help the world. So, both Swami Vivekananda and Sri Ramakrishna recognized that the two biggest obstacles that, uh, in our lives, particularly when we turn to spiritual life, are the impulses towards passion and possession, towards pelf and pleasure, or we can say lust and greed. These are two of the great, great uh, diversions. And Desire for name and fame is, is there also. Swami Vivekananda puts it so uh, seriously. To the Oriental, the Occidental is the dreamer, because the Westerners would accuse the Indians of being dreamers. You all are dreamers, contemplating your navels and all of that stuff. To the Oriental, the Occidental is the dreamer, playing with the dolls of a five-minute's fancy. He laughs to think that grown men and women should make so much of a handful of matter, which sooner or later they will have to leave. Can you not see the tide of death and materialism that is rolling over these western lands? How long will you keep the bandage over your eyes? Can you not see the power of lust and unholiness that is eating into the very vitals of society? So he recognized that actually the whole of society is weakened is uh, by these impulses towards lust and unholiness. And what's the remedy? Spirituality. Swami Vivekananda always saw that the real remedy for the world's ills is spirituality and nothing less. Knowing, knowing of course, that you can't teach religion to someone with an empty stomach. So basic needs have to be met. And then the remedy is spirituality. And he called for uh, young men and women are needed who are ready to dedicate their whole lives to spirit, foregoing family and career. That idea that there are a few needed to be exclusively in that line. And this is an interesting point that he, he makes also. He, he points out that uh, a race must first cultivate a great respect for motherhood through the sanctification and inviolability of marriage before it can attain to the ideal of perfect chastity. So, um, this idea that chastity is not only for the monk. Chastity is for everyone. Celibacy for the monk and chastity for everyone. uh, His... uh, inspiring lines about monastic life. For the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, is the sannyasin born. The sannyasin is born into this world to lay down his or her life for others, to stop the bitter cries of men, to wipe the tears of the widow, 
to bring peace to the soul of the bereaved mother, to equip the ignorant masses for the struggle for existence, to accomplish the secular and spiritual well-being of all through the diffusion of spiritual teachings, and to arouse the sleeping lion of Brahman in all by throwing in the light of knowledge. So I think it's a beautiful ideal, and I, th I think this resonates with every Vedanta student. Every Vedanta student has a responsibility to let our light shine, let our light of spirituality shine, grow our hearts so that we are able to love not only our own near and dear ones, but even the diabolical. <clears throat> I wanted to touch just briefly on the, the, the two ordinations that we have in our monastic tradition. Uh, sometimes we call them vows, and the first one is the, the brahmacharya ordination, and it's very definitely a vows. I will do this, I will not do that. And the second is actually more of an affirmation of our divinity. It's not exactly I will do, I will not do, which we usually call vows. But what is this, what is this vow? And this is something that we, do, we, we who get married also make a vow. We make a public proclamation in the presence of others that I am going to live this life. What kind of life? A life governed by certain principles and practices which will help me attain my goal, the realization of infinite love and infinite bliss. So there are some very practical, in our ordination, there are some very, uh, the vows are some very practical things like, I'm going to get up early in the morning. Every day, including Sundays, early in the morning, before sunrise. And what am I going to do after that? I'm going to meditate every day. I'm going to meditate every day. I'm going to serve others to the best of my ability. I'm going to try to be like a bee, not like a fly. A bee, the bee only drinks nectar. The fly sits on all kinds of nasty stuff. Uh, I'm not going to look at faults of others. I'm going to look at their good qualities. Hmm? That these are the kinds of uh, vows that we take. I'm going to try to dedicate my whole life to God and God alone. And I'm not going to marry. I'm going to try to avoid even the thought of marriage, the thought of sex. People are afraid of this one. If I study Vedanta, do I have to become celibate? The horror. There's a lot of misunderstanding about this. Celibacy is a question of Conservation of energy. Swami Vivekananda in Thousand Island Park, he taught the students, unchaste imagination is as bad as unchaste action. Controlled desire leads to the highest result. Transform the sexual energy into spiritual energy. But do not emasculate, because that is throwing away the power. The stronger this force, the more can be done with it. So it's actually a natural development. It, it should, it's not something that can be forced. It's like when the leaf dries, it falls off of itself. But if you try to pull it off when it's not yet dry, you may tear and injure the tree. And I think the practice of a celibacy is not really possible unless one begins to taste some sweetness and joy within in the practice of meditation. But it's a source, can be a source of tremendous power. What does Swami Vivekananda say? In my first speech in this country, in Chicago, I addressed that audience as sisters and brothers of America. 
and you know that they all rose to their feet. This was remarkable. He simply came up to the, as, you, as I think we've all heard, sisters and brothers of America, the whole hall rose and gave him a standing ovation of some two minutes. You may wonder what made them do this. You may wonder if I had some strange power. Let me tell you that I did have a power, and this is it. Never once in my life did I allow myself to have even one sexual thought. I trained my mind, my thinking, and the powers that man usually uses along that line I put into a higher channel, and it developed a force so strong that nothing could resist it. So this is a little bit about this, this practice of celibacy, to which monks are called, and the same practice of chastity to which householders are called, uh, to see God in one's spouse. The physical aspect of a, a committed relationship um, is typically part of it, and it helps bring the two souls closer together and helps them to feel spiritually united. And there may come a time, typically if both partners are sincere spiritual aspirants, where the physical part is no longer so necessary because, after all, the, phys- the, phys- the physique also declines, and as uh, they feel more and more spiritually close, the physical aspect is no longer important. So this ordination is a source of great strength, just like a marriage vow is a source of great strength. Well, I've, I've told everybody I'm going to do this, and I've got this ring on my finger, so I'm not going to look at other people. Uh, I'm, I'm dedicated to this particular person. Uh, together we're going to walk across the ocean of life and attain God together. So likewise, a monastic ordination also gives tremendous strength because I've said in the, in the presence of all my monastic brothers and sisters, the seniors, I've said I'm going to lead, the, lead this life. So I'm, I've got to do it. It's a tremendous push, this uh, power of a vow, a holy vow, sincerely taken. It's a beautiful. So I think we've, we're running out of time. I was going to tell a little about, about the final ordination also, this sannyasa, in which we affirm our true nature as infinite consciousness and bliss and let go of all desires for anything else, affirming that we will not harm any being. From me, from me no danger be to aught that lives. In those that dwell on high, in those that lowly creep, I am the self in all, that same self, that same divinity dwelling in everything. And we receive a, a colored cloth of the fire, the color of the fire of renunciation. And we receive a new name, uh, Swami or Pravrajika. And uh, the, the one fascinating part of the procedure of, of this final ordination is that the day before, uh, we do a funeral service for everybody, our ancestors, our parents, whether they're living or dead, we do a funeral service because afterwards we're not we won't be able to do that. And then we perform our own funeral service because we'll have no kids to do it for us. So we perform our own funeral service and then we have died, as it were. And the actual ceremony is done uh, before a sacred fire. Perhaps most of you have attended a home of fire. 
here in the pavilion. It's, it's just like that. We make a homa fire and then we offer sacred leaves dipped in clarified butter or ghee into the fire with each uh, affirmation and the mantra swaha. So uh, may my body, my mind and everything be purified and my re- may I realize that I am the ever pure light divine swaha again and again. We, we get our heads shaved but we keep a little tuft because that's, the, that's the, the tradition of India. And at the time of sannyasa, that tuft gets cut off. And we put that tuft also into the, into the fire. And there's a special Swami mantra which is also given. So henceforth, the old person has died and a new birth has taken place. So... Uh, Let me close with a, a, few pa- a couple of passages from Swami Vivekananda, uh, who is an unending source of inspiration to me, and I hope you can catch some of his fire too. What the world wants today, said the Swami, Sister Nivedita is recording this, what the world wants today, said the Swami, the determination to throw a bomb, as he called it, evidently taking sudden possession of him, what the world wants today is 20 men and women who can dare to stand in the street yonder and say that they possess nothing but God. Who will go? He had risen to his feet by this time and stood looking around his audience as if begging some of them to join him. Why should one fear? And then, in tones of which even now I can hear again the thunderous conviction, if this is true, what else could matter? If it is not true, what do our lives matter? True. This is it. If God is not true, what do our lives matter? It's meaningless, utterly meaningless. But if it is true, what else matters? What else could matter? For all of us, possess nothing but God. Know that when, uh, dedicate our houses, our, our funds, be caretakers of our funds, dedicate our funds, everything to God, and be simply caretakers. What else could we possibly possess? Because everything else will be torn away from us at death, if not before. Everything that we think we own will be torn away from us, including our bodies. But not the divine, not who we truly are. That is our only possession, actually. So who can dare stand on the street corner and proclaim it loudly? I possess nothing but God. So, Swami Vivekananda uh, spoke only twice of his master, Sri Ramakrishna, and the last time he spoke, of, uh, the first time he spoke of him in public. I mean in public, from the platform, uh, in New York, Madison Square Gardens. And at the end of that talk, he gave this tremendous call to uh, this kind of, this response to the call of the Spirit, the monastic response. And he, he says, such renunciation is what this age requires. The kind of renunciation of Sri Ramakrishna who couldn't even touch money. Men, of, men and women of today, if there be among you any pure, fresh flower, let it be laid on the altar of God. If there are among you any who, being young, do not desire to return into the world, let them give up. Let them renounce. This is the one secret of spirituality 
renunciation. Stand up and strike. The very sight of you will fill the worldly mind, the wealth-seeking mind, with terror. If you can renounce all wealth and all sex, it will not be necessary for you to speak. Your lotus will have blossomed, and the spirit will spread. Whoever approaches you will be warmed, as it were, by the fire of your spirituality. This is the message of Sri Ramakrishna to the modern world. Care not for doctrines, doctrines or for dogmas, for sects or for churches. All these count for but little compared with the essence of existence which is in each one and called spirituality. Therefore, my master's message to the world is, be ye all spiritual, get ye first realization. And to the young and strong of every country, he would cry that the time has come for renunciation. Renounce for the sake of humanity. You have talked of the love of man till the thing is in danger of becoming words alone. The time has come to act. The call now is do. Leap into the breach and save the world. So this is Swami Vivekananda's call. You know, uh, we, we've talked about the call of the Spirit. The gurus call us. The guru, this is Swami Vivekananda's call, calling us to be spiritual. Sri Ramakrishna, Sri Ramakrishna used to crock, uh, at the end of the, he knew his disciples were coming. He would climb up to the roof of the mansion uh, of the proprietors of the Kali temple where he lived. He would, at the end of the day, his disciples still hadn't come. He would go up to the roof and he would break down weeping. And he would say, my children, where are you? Come to me. Where are you? Come to me. And, fi- and finally, they began to come. And that call of Sri Ramakrishna is still resounding. My children, come to me. The Spirit is calling to us. Come, come. Just as the ancient sage called out, Hear, ye children of immortal bliss. This is the call of the Spirit constantly calling us. How are we going to respond? The Spirit is always calling us to be present, to see the divine, to know that we are that. If this were not so, our lives would be meaningless. But it is so, and ultimately nothing else matters. So this is the question I leave with you today. How will we answer this call? How will we answer the call to see the divine shining in our hearts and in every heart? How will we answer the call of the Spirit? Thank you. And there's no choir, so I have to give the closing song also, but it's just going to be a chant, (laughs) a short chant. Om Sarve Bhavantu Sukhinaha, Sarve Santu Niramayaha, Sarve Bhadrani Pashyantu Makashchindukhabhag Bhavir. Durjana Sajjano Bhuyat Sajjana Shanti Mapnuyat, Shanto Mucheta Bandhe Bhyomuktaschanyamimochayet, Swasti Prajabhyaf Paripala Yantan Nyayena Margena Mahi Mahishaha, Go Brahmane Bhyashubhamastunityam, Loka Samasta Sukhino Bhavantu, Loka Samasta Sukhino Bhavantu, Om Shanti Shanti Shanti. May all beings be happy. May all be free from disease. May all experience the highest good. May no one suffer misery. May the wicked become virtuous. May the virtuous attain to peace. May the peaceful be free from bondage. May the freed lead others to freedom. 
May blessings betide all people. May our leaders protect the earth and her people with wisdom and compassion. May true well-being ever bless all seekers of truth. May all beings in all the worlds be happy. Om peace, peace, peace. Um, I hope that I, I really appreciate the opportunity to share some of my thoughts. I hope that for uh, it wasn't too much on the monastic side. Uh, there is actually I didn't mention, but uh, there's going to be a monastic ordination uh, on Friday, and that's what inspired me to speak on this uh, topic. Uh, and uh, but I think it, whether we are called to be monks or we are called not not called that way, we can still take a tremendous inspiration from the ideal. And I hope I could convey some of that today. Uh, next week, uh, our speaker will be. Uh, our own Wade Daisy, Professor Wade Daisy, and his topic is spiritual procrastination. <laughs> so that'll be next week so, uh, at 11. And uh, uh, I would like to ask us to close today by chanting together the word peace in uh, considering all the strife that's going on in different parts of the world and all the wars. I, I invite you to join me in chanting the word peace in four sacred languages. The Arabic, Hebrew, Sanskrit, and English. That will be Salam, Shalom, Shanti, Peace. We'll chant three times. Salam, Shalom, Shanti, Peace, Salam, Shalom, Shanti, Peace, Salam, Shalom, Shanti, Peace, Peace. Peace.